while it's proper to question reality on days like yesterday, so I remember the time I went up to Dolgeville to a meeting of the men on the April the 1st, and I heard on the radio that the Florida citrus growers were asking, were giving to everyone in New York State at the exits of the thruway a free sample of Florida orange juice, but you had to ask. And wouldn't you know it, I asked. And the people at the, at the, at the toll booths are saying, what in the world are you talking about? It wasn't until later I realized it was April the 1st, and the guys on the radio were pulling an April the 1st joke, and I got snared. I got snared. So we kind of live with a little bit of skepticism yesterday. I think um, when everybody was outside yesterday welcoming the Grays, I think somebody, maybe Bob Orr, went up to you guys and said, it's Sunday, you know why you're so late for church? <laughs> but... Um, well, I say that by way of welcoming you to April. We are in the month of April, and that's not a joke. <laughs> and being it's the first month, um, the first Lord's Day in the month of April, uh, it's our general practice to do an open form type of study. And um, in a number of months, we've not had from you folks something, uh, so I've always come with a backup plan, and I have a backup plan this morning. And I'm almost reticent to say, does anybody have a question? Because I want to get to the backup plan. But if, if you came this morning, say, hey, this is the week for open forum. I have a question, and it just has to be asked. I will defer to you. So if you're in that state of mind that you just couldn't wait for the next open forum to ask your question, feel free to ask it. And if um, in after about 10 seconds, if there's no hand that is raised, uh, I'll go ahead with my plan. I can defer it for you. So... You can't remember your question. Well, that's, that's providential. <laughs> no, I was, it was something I read in Proverbs. Okay. And I was like, what does that exactly mean? And I was thinking, well, that would be a good thing to bring to you sometime. Or okay. Time, but I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. So okay, so table it for... Write it down. Write it down. Write it down. We'll table it for next time. Has, has a burning question. Mike has a burning question. Yeah. Well, he really has to be here to ask it. <laughs> Do you know what it is? Yeah, well, I wouldn't answer it anyway unless Mike was here since it's his question. So uh, we'll get to those. As a lot of you know, I did go this week up to Dolgeville, and um, we had a meeting of the pastors in New York State. Um, and it was a, a blessed meeting. We had uh, Our prayer meeting was really structured around the needs of the pastors that were made known. Um, one of the benefits of that kind of fellowship is that we engage in conversation and discussion. I got like four hours to go with Pastor Nichols up there, two hours and two hours back. And, um, you know, as people who know me know, there wasn't a whole lot of silence in the car. Tend to, you know, love those situations where we can talk a lot and um, discuss the Bible. And so there were a number of things that we did discuss that uh, provoked my thinking along a number of lines. And and even uh, I've gotten to the place where Generally speaking, I go up there, somebody somewhere along the line is going to pull me aside and say, I have a question to ask you. This has only been in recent years that that's happened. I've become sort of an elder statesman, and you, know, you hang around long enough, you're going to be an elder statesman. <laughs> so I guess I fit the, fit the bill. And so I was asked a question, and uh, I thought I'd begin with that, and then I, I'd like to move, uh, if that doesn't raise discussion among us, with something that Pastor Nichols raised in the book that he's uh, publishing or looking to publish in his work on systematic theology. Ultimately, he's looked to have seven volumes, and I think of, there's at least four, I think, that are in print now, and he's working on the doctrine of the church. But um, I was cornered and asked a question um, along the lines of how I understood the exhortation in Paul's letters where he exhorts Timothy to hold forth or hold fast the form of sound words, or sometimes that's translated the healthy teaching, and just what that demands of us in terms of preaching um, doctrinal truth, how we bring to bear the theology of the church, the witness of the confessions, and things like that. And um, I'm never going to say don't engage in doctrinal preaching and teaching. But I'm also going to say 
That's not the way God has revealed himself to us. You don't open, up, you don't open your Bible and uh, say, well, you know, here's the Lord's systematic theology and here is, um, you know, here you have the doctrine of God opening up and the doctrine of the word and the doctrine of man and the doctrine of uh, well, the creation and providence and God's uh, ordinance, uh, 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 God's decrees. You don't have that in the Bible. You have teaching that is doctrinal teaching, but it really comes embedded in stories, in narratives. Most of our Bibles, I've told this man, is stories and a lot of it's poetry. And, and God addresses us in a way that captures our imagination, that brings us into his dealings with people in the stuff of life in the context of living situations and he makes himself known he doesn't make himself known just in a doctrinal treatise he makes himself known and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said I am your shield and your exceeding great reward and that's how God reveals himself it's in the midst of conversations and dialogue and, and revelations of himself to the nation of Israel some of the greatest revelations of um, God's name or God's character comes in the midst of, of, of questions. Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? So, you know, God's saying, go into, go into Egypt and uh, bring my people out. When I go to the Israelites, they'll ask, who is this God who appeared to you? What shall I tell him your name is? And God reveals himself, his name. I am who I am. And um, again, so it's in the light of those stories, that the narratives that the scriptures are presenting. And it presents it to us in ways, again, that fascinates. Well, everybody loves a story. Who doesn't love a story? God comes and tells us these stories. And he tells us about himself through those stories. We learn about human sin through those stories. We learn about... God's providence through those stories. You have the book of Esther. The Lord's name is not mentioned once in the book of Esther, and yet you learn more about God as the God of providence who uh, protected his people in the midst of um, the efforts of Haman to, to destroy them. And uh, you learn how God's faithfulness is displayed to his nation, even though Yahweh is not mentioned at all. You don't have the names of God at all in the book, and yet God's there every, on every page. So, I uh, told him, yes, by all means, preach doctrine, but don't make it like you're preaching a systematic theology. Because I think one of the great, I mean, this is going to lead into my introduction to my message this morning, but I'll give you a little taste of what I hope to say, is I think because we think it's our task to replicate uh, orthodox teaching, such as you would find in our Confession of Faith, such as you would find in the uh, church councils, uh, such as you would find in um, you know, three volumes of systematic theology, where some theologian takes the truth of God and counters it to every known and conceivable heresy under the sun. And I tell you, for me, I can read only so much of that, <laughs> and I begin to get a little bit weary. It's to me, you know, making much books, reading much books, it becomes a, a weariness to the flesh. And if it becomes awareness of the flesh for teachers and preachers to assimilate all that information, if they think it's their responsibility to shoot it back at people every Sunday, then they don't have half of the kind of background and training in some of these things that the preacher has. You don't think that people are going to get bored or, or tune out or it would be overwhelming? And that's, the point of it is, not, not whether it's wise or not wise, not whether it's, as they say, wise pedagogy, wise method of instruction uh, to teach do doctrinal sermons or not. The point of it is, it's not the way God teaches us. It's not the way God has come and revealed himself to us in his word. He comes and he tells us stories. He comes and he gives us poetry. He gives us um, the expression of his revelation in ways that captivate and, and spark interest and cause our imaginations to, to, to take wing. And I think it's important that if that's how God has expressed himself, we'd be faithful to God's way of teaching in the way that we teach. Um, and I think when we do it right, first of all, the Bible 
will never cease to spark imagination. I mean, you go to any museum and look at particularly ancient paintings or older paintings, how many are paintings that were Bible stories that the painter said, I've got to put this on canvas. I've got to give a, a sense of what this might have been like in his own imagination. And you see the ways different artists represented the biblical account, whether they got it right or whether they got it wrong. It always seems to me it's kind of wrong seeing pictures, and I've seen such pictures, of Jesus standing in the midst of this Jordan River and he has this big water pitcher and he's pouring it down on the head of the person being baptized. I don't think that's how it happened. But, you know, People will also take their own traditions uh, and they'll read the Bible that way. But we need to read the Bible biblically. We need to read the Bible in the way that we're really having uh, the actual story that's being told to us um, begin to spark our, our hearts and minds, our souls. I think that's why poetry is the method God uses. You could say so many things in poetry that when you have a prose rendering, it's, uh, you know, it's okay. You know, I could describe the, uh, the sunrise this morning, but I could also sing George Harrison, Here Comes the Sun. And I think one is a little bit more interesting, especially if you grew up in the 60s and you listen to the Beatles. Um, amazing how many songs they had about the sun. Good Day Sunshine and all those songs. Anyway, but uh, you see it in poetry, or you hear it in poetry, or it's set to music, and again, God gives us music. He gives us the Psalms, metrical a psalter in which the meter is part of it. The way in which God expresses these things come to us in poetry and in song. So I gave him that caution. Yes, teach, teach the doctrines, but teach it the way God's word teaches it. Bring the truth in ways that um, are compelling. And, and I don't mean, you know, try to be you know, poetic or just be biblical and you'll be poetic. Just be biblical and you'll tell good stories. Just be biblical. You know, again, I think, you know, we thought, when I first became Reformed, one of the criticisms I think we had of teaching in the church was that preachers told too many stories. And I think when they're just, everything's autobiographical, you get to the place where, you know, you think of Paul's statement, we do not preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. Sometimes those type of stories that are always autobiographical, preachers always talking about their experiences, like I just did when I talked about going up to Dolgeville and talking to this man. But that's not the that's not the major thing we do. Sure, those things are good, but an overabundance of those things can be um, also wearying and also be. Um, I think unfaithful to the word of God because there are doctrinal themes that need to be affirmed and need to be asserted. But doctrinal themes embedded within the kind of worldview that the, uh, the, 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 the worldview in which the, the world circumstances in which the scriptures were given. That there was this church in Rome and here is their background and situation and this church at Corinth and the troubles and problems they've had and and Paul addresses them in addressing their problems with these great Bible realities so anyway that's the counsel I try to give to him and I think it's a a wise counsel just to to recognize um, to read the scriptures the way the scriptures are given Um, you know first of all it's really really interesting I'll give you an example of this. Um, Amos Jabello uh, called me last night. I, he asked me to preach in um, Englewood on the seventh of May, and he called me to t- tell me that there, or they, he didn't know it at the time when he invited me, but they voted a man to be a deacon in their church. And the only day uh, this would work out for him and whoever he wants to invite to his ordination is the very day that I was invited to speak. So he's going to push me back into the summertime, which is fine. Um, but we began, to, we, we began to speak, and um, we began to speak about uh, just things we see in, in the scriptures. I was sharing him, with him some things that um, I had seen in, in, in the Word. And then, you know, he, he began to speak to me about sometimes the frustration he has in, in reading the narratives of the scriptures, asking himself the question, why did God put that there? What's the reason that's there? And I said to him, you know, that's the greatest question you could ever ask. 
Because once you've asked that question, then you can go begin to to pursue it. And you, to, you know, once the question's raised, you need need an answer. Let's go to work finding an answer to the question. Because one thing in my mind is clear: whether you know it or not, there is an answer. There is an answer to that question. And the question he raised to me was the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. Why were those things there? What's this business about there being, you know, poison in the in the pot of stew and he goes and he makes it no longer toxic. He, he does a miracle so that there's no longer uh, trouble uh, to eat the food. Why does he do that? What's that about? What's his business about an axe head that falls into the, the water? He lost his axe head. And a sermon on that subject that said, have you lost your cutting edge? <laughs> I don't really think that was the point. Have you lost your cutting edge? The one about there being danger in the pot? I heard actually, a guy actually said, I was warning us against marijuana, the marijuana's pot, right? Danger, poison in the pot. <laughs> well, you know, those things are, are really stretches. But there are reasons those things are there. And I just began to think about it. I read through the narratives last night, and I don't have all the answers, but there's a couple of things I saw that I think are very, very intriguing. Now, let me give you at least what I've come up with to this point. As I read the narratives, one of the things I saw, well, I began to number the miracles that Elijah did, and I began to just put down what were the miracles concerned with, what kind of miracles were being done. And you, know, you came up with things like he, that there will be no rain for three years except in my word. <laughs> the miracle of uh, causing a drought. Three years drought at Elijah's word. And then you have the miracle he God puts him at the uh, river um, and he's fed by ravens. I mean, ravens come and bring him things that normally ravens eat. <laughs> the ravens weren't eating it. They were just God's messengers to bring food to sustain the prophet for six months by that river. He goes up into Sidon and comes to the city of Zarephath, and there's this widow woman there, and the uh, oil and the, the, the grain uh, that she makes for cakes, uh, it continues to multiply. It continues to be sustain them so that she, her, her son, and the prophet uh, are sustained. Multiplication of food. They're much like the Gospels. And then the resurrection of the sun. And then the fire from heaven that comes down on Mount Carmel. And then uh, there's also fire from heaven that comes at the end. And uh, I don't have all of them, but that's, that's a lot of them. Uh, but the thing is, I numbered seven. I numbered seven distinct miracles. I think there's also the one where he was sustained for 40 days and 40 nights with a couple of meals that the angels gave him. And he has the strength for 40 days and 40 nights. So, you have miracles with respect to food and how food's provided. You have miracles with respect to nature, that he, at his word, the rain doesn't come. You have miracles with respect to at least one resurrection from the dead and miracles of fire falling from heaven. And there's seven in number. Although there is one more. And that's the miracle where at the end of his life, before God took him up to heaven, not the end of his surging upon the earth, he has already ordained Elisha, put a mantle upon him, and then he, uh, uh, there is the uh, opening of the Jordan, and Elijah passes over on dry land, and Elisha with him, and he's taken up into heaven. And so that's like an eighth miracle. But I didn't count it in the first seven, because Elisha does the same thing, going the other way, back over the Jordan. Or maybe it's that way, back over the Jordan. <laughs> that he takes the mantle of Elijah, Elijah and lays it down, and the Jordan opens, and he goes through on dry land. So there's kind of like a connecting miracle between the ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Elisha. Okay, you have one that connects them. They both did the same thing. It's like the mantle is being placed now upon Elisha, and now there's a miracle that Elijah did and Elisha did. So now Elijah's gone, and a new man's taken over who has considerable power. But the power of the prophet was said to be double that which was upon Elijah. 
So if you'd expect double portion of the Spirit, you wouldn't be surprised to find out that after the Jordan, there's 14 miracles that Elisha does. So seven that Elijah did, 14 that Elisha did. Oh, you read the text. I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe I numbered them incorrectly. Maybe there's things you'd consider a miracle. I didn't consider a miracle. But I counted 14 that Elisha did and 7 that Elijah did. So, again, I don't have all the answers as to why these miracles happened. But one thing I can tell you is these miracles are meant to connect the ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Elisha. That there's something of a compare and contrast between the two prophets. And God has a message in that, and I don't know exactly what it is, but I know when Jesus was in the synagogue of Nazareth in the New Testament, and he read from Isaiah 61, and he begins to apply it, uh, particularly to the hearers, who um, he, he, he gives a story from Elijah, and he gives a story from Elisha. That you had uh, you know, many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And unto none of the Israeli widows was Elijah sent, but to a widow who was a foreigner. And then you have many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha, but unto none of the Israelite lepers was Elisha sent, but he healed Naaman the Syrian. And so there's a lesson, and it comes from both Elijah and Elisha. Now, I, I'm just observing that, that that's there. And, and then there's things about Elijah that come up, uh, that seem to connect him with John the Baptist, right? That in the, um, the book of Malachi connects him with John the Baptist. Was there something about John the Baptist's ministry that was Elijah-like? Well, in appearance, diet, and even in the force of his pronunciation of sin and his denunciation of sin and the prophecies with respect to judgment, those were there. And Elijah, Elijah's ministries were particularly um, uh, his, his you know, fire from heaven, fire from heaven. The, the, the um, disciples asked, shall we call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? And Jesus said, you do not know what spirit you are of. Maybe the thought there is you need to have not so much an Elijah type of ministry, but Elisha type of ministry. Because an Elisha type of ministry, when you see it, it was much broader than what Elijah had. It, it, it brought in the relationship between Israel and the nations. Um, and, uh, the, the armies of the Syrians. And, uh, the uh, uh, saving of multitudes alive. Uh, water that fills the valley. That... Uh, so many things that he did, it just didn't affect a small group, it affected a large group. The whole community was being effective. It's a much greater, larger scale. You see some comparison between Jesus and John the Baptist? I mean, there's things that are there that I haven't drawn together all of them, but they're there. They're there in Scripture. And so, I guess my point is, this is a fertile area for people to read and to investigate these connections, because the connections are there. I mean, it's not something I've, I've made up. I hope you see that, that they're really there. And just what does it all mean? Well, I don't have all the answers to that. But I know that they, those stories were not placed there haphazardly. They weren't just popped in. I mean, you can say, well, they're popped in there because they occurred. Yeah, but probably lots of things occurred in the life of Elijah and Elisha that are not recorded. Just as there were many things that Jesus did that John says are not, were not recorded. But these things are recorded, that. You might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing have life in his name. I mean, John only records seven miracles. We know that the other Gospels tell us about a bunch more miracles that are not recorded in John. And there are probably a bunch more things that Elijah did that are not recorded in the book of uh, Kings. And a lot of things Elisha did that weren't not recorded. But these things are recorded for a purpose. And there is a purpose of seeing a relationship between the prophetic ministry of Elijah, the prophetic ministry of Elisha, and something in the way that that does correspond in some way or fashion to a type of ministry that John the Baptist had and that Jesus says to his disciples, you're not to have, like calling down fire from heaven, and uh, something that we might see in Elisha that is a little bit more um, expressive of, of blessings. But the only thing I see in Elisha that's a curse is the she-bears that came out and devoured the, the boys, but the, the, the lads or the youth, whoever. You know. Anyway, that story is, is there. So that's a fertile area in which we can explore. And uh, that's what I'm saying, is that we need to under, see that the way in which, you know, how, how you 
put together the doctrine of miracles or the doctrine of prophetic ministry has something to say with the way in which God expressed it in the story of Elijah and Elisha. And they seem to be pivotal characters because it's from them that we start to read about the school of the prophets. You know, prophetic ministry in a widespread way that others came to be prophets really came out of the time of Elijah and Elisha. They kind of were at the head of the school of the prophets. And prophetic ministry that tended to proliferate after that. But anyway, so that's how God teaches us. And those are fascinating ways that he teaches us. Those are ways that to keep you up at night reading your Bible. <laughs> and you see, this is, this is too interesting. I've got to you know, explore this just a little bit more. So anyway, but we need to be, have our antenna up when we read the Bible to look for those things. Again, not to put things in it, but to see what's really there. And to read the text more carefully, because we tend to not see what's really there. We tend to just skip over it and say, well, I don't really get that, so let's move on to the next thing. It's fine not to get it, but I think once not getting it raises a question, then that becomes something to begin to consider and explore and work on, and maybe talk to other people about, and to see if other insights can be brought from others in your own reading. That's probably, we should do more of that. Anyway, so that uh, arose out of our gathering on Thursday, uh, Tuesday, Tuesday of, the last of this week. No, no, last week. New week begins on Sunday. I'll get it right one day. I want to move on. Any questions about that before we move on? Y'all, y'all with me on what I was trying to say? Okay. Yes, Jan? I'm sorry? I'm sorry? Yes. Um, the gentleman you, asked me the question. Did, did yeah. he have any uh, preconceived notions of how it was for him to hold fast the form of sound teaching? Um, I think it, the question likely arose for him out of some discussion he had with someone else about maybe your preaching is too doctrinal. And he's looking to defend the practice of heavy doctrinal preaching, that maybe someone said to him, you know, it's too, it's too heavy, it's too, too, too loaded down with uh, doctrine, 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 doctrine. And if that's what you're getting in church, that can be a, a taxing sort of thing. Um, and I think it's something that brings people to think, well, there's not much in the Bible that's interesting. <laughs> And that's the greatest lie. That's I think if the devil wanted to convince us of something, it's that the Bible isn't interesting. The Bible is just a boring book that's vexing and taxing and it's waste, wasting your time really to try to fathom what's in it. But when you really see the Bible is really an amazingly interesting book that has sparked the imagination again of musicians and artists and painters and authors and, you know, John Bunyan gives you the Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> it was um, that's that's what really the Bible does. It should, it should create things of that type of literature, sparking our imagination, heavenward, and into the you know, deeper understanding and fuller appreciation of the amazing things of of God. Yeah, so I think that's what it came out of. Um, let's move on real quickly. Um, I mentioned that Pastor Nichols is writing his book on doctrine of the church. And one of the things we began to do as we were um, going up there is talking about the things he's presently working on. And uh, he's working on the theme of worship. And he had some interesting observations with respect to the theme of worship. And I thought I would raise that with you this morning. Put the word worship in a Google search. And you know, sometimes when you put something in a Google search, there'll be a, a box that drops down and it begins to give you the suggestions of what, you know, you say worship and it's going to complete it with something. You know, and then you can just click on that. You know what I'm saying? The, the, the thing. So those things that drop down are the things that worship is associated with most often in searches. So when people are searching the subject of worship, what do you think it's associated with? What in the Google search does worship get associated with? Anybody have any ideas? You can do it on your own phone or 
see what drops down. Worship. I don't know. In modern times, worship. I don't know if that's why they put it. Would I like connect it with music? Thank you. you Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You get a, a thing that I had was worship songs. Then it had worship, it had a definition. So you want to get a good definition of worship, hit that box. And then it was worship uh, music, and um, on and on. And it mostly had to do with the subject of music. Or, you know, think about worship, uh, worship teams. Um, I mentioned to someone yesterday that we have, Ed's been teaching the grandkids uh, the, the, the guitar. And uh, at least a couple of the grandkids are, are getting pretty good, and so I said, "Well, we'll have um, we'll have the church uh, band." <laughs> and so uh, Ed Trench, who was visiting with us, said, uh, "Oh, you can have a, a worship team," and you know, I can mention a band. Band means music. Um, music does not mean worship team or worship anything. That's just how it's come to be. You mentioned a worship team. Oh, those are all the people that really pray well. They're going to lead in the worship team. Is that the requisite for the worship team? Really strong prayer people who pray. Or really strong um, people who can teach God's word. That's not the worship. Well, the worship team isn't concerned about praying. It's not concerned about teaching God's word. It's concerned about music. That's what the worship team is concerned about. So most of the concepts with respect to worship uh, are in that line. Now, we're good reform people, so we know that's not good. And we know that's not right. And we even have a regulative principle of worship, right? And the regulative principle of worship that says if God's commanded, we do it. If it's something that's in God's word, we do it. And so worship involves things where we have a positive statement or positive command or a positive enactment of a practice that we do in um, what we call worship. And what would that involve? What are the things that... Uh, so this is the, this is the modern okay, ideas. Okay? Now, let's look at the Reformed ideas. When you think of worship, what do we think of? Preaching. Think of preaching. Preaching and teaching. What else? Prayer. Prayer. Praise. Praise. Pennies. Hmm? Pennies. Pennies. I don't hear you. Pennies. Penny? P's. Uh, giving. Giving. You'll even find a P for giving? <laughs> Very good, Jen. That's my wife. <laughs> Can you say proportional giving? How about that? <laughs> Get another P in there. Okay. <laughs> okay, uh, well, let's just put giving. <laughs> It's funny, we didn't put music in there at all. <laughs> Let's give the peace go. Let's say psalms. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know, just because the world is thinking of only music, we have to also think of music, I would hope. Under praise, you praise. Oh, again, isn't this interesting? We connect music with praise. Because words in the hymns, well, they're all different kinds, of course, but... Yeah, there's all different kinds of hymns other than praise hymns, and there's all different kinds of song, songs other than praise songs. So I wouldn't make it an equation. You know, we can praise in song, but we also can praise in prayer. You know, it's not a necessarily uh, identical concept. But all the things that we have in reference uh, to worship, we have in terms of the public gatherings, don't we? Um, we don't have the perspective of the Ruth Graham divine service done at your dishwasher at, at your sink three times a day. That's not the issue for us. But you know, in the Bible, that's precisely what a worship means. That's precisely the issue. And really, when you wrestle with the whole question of worship in the Bible, 
as Pastor Nichols was was saying, we were. He didn't use this this, this exact words. So I'm going to suggest this to him to see if he approves or doesn't approve. That really, what you have is um, the worship of God's people in assembly, which is interesting because part of what is essential in terms of actual Bible verses about assembly also includes the Lord's Supper. When you gather together, it's not to keep the Lord's Supper. When you gather together, here's how you to do it. So it deals with the assembly. The Lord's Supper belongs in there, maybe a little higher than we tend to put it sometimes. But so you have God's worship of the people or the church in assembly. But the worship that the Bible recommends and advocates and speaks of is a worship that is done not just in assembly but the worship of the people of God that's done when the church is scattered. The church in assembly and the church that's scattered. So when you have the church scattered, you have the body of Christ who in assembly have learned to worship, continuing to worship, and worship in the Bible involves a grouping of words that we would not ordinarily associate with worship. A lot of times we consider it with regard to personal religion, maybe. But one of the things Pastor Nichols was working through was the way in which the Bible expresses the subject of worship. For instance, you have a grouping of words in the New Testament, the proskuneo word group, it's a Greek word, that actually means to prostrate oneself, to bow down before someone. And it's an interesting thing in, in that, that word proskuneo, is that in certain cultures it was appropriate to bow down and worship in that sense, proskuneo, as a, a token of respect for people who are above you. Let's say uh, a parent, perhaps, in certain circumstances, or a, a governor, or a king, or a figure like Daniel. You know, there's a lot of people that wonder how Daniel in Persia, I'm sorry, um, yeah, Daniel in Babylon uh, was given the honors of by Nebuchadnezzar that people would bow down before him. And really the word that's used is part of the word group that speaks of worship. Daniel as a Jew would not want people to worship him. But you see that act of proskuneo, which is the New Testament word, was not an act of worship. It was not an act that's given only to deity. It was an act that's given as an item of respect. Anybody ever see the king and I? The king and I, you had the king who didn't want anybody's head to be higher than his own. And it's a matter, he said, of respect. Remember, he says, you know, Messiah, <laughs> do you so disrespect me? You know, he took it as a matter of respect, not a matter of worship. It wasn't that he was claiming divine honors, but it was a matter of respect that his head would be above all the others because he was the king and they were not. And then, of course, when his son took over, in one of the final scenes, and the son is now given, having been taught by the schoolmistress, Anna, um, about, you know, Western values, the way the West views things, he says... I will no longer have my subjects to grovel at my feet. They will stand with their heads erect and their shoulders back. And he, you know, total Western way of viewing it as a matter of respect to someone. Uh, and so those type of things, the outward expression, uh, can, can tend to differ in terms of the culture. But that word proskuneo, that was a word that speaks of reverence, actually translates the Old Testament words that speak of fear, that speak of the fear of God. The part of worshiping God is a matter of fearing Him, of living and walking in His fear. And it's the word that is actually taken by Jesus when the devil tempted Him in the wilderness. And He said, um, worship Me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. Um, and Jesus said, for it is written, you shall worship Yahweh, you should worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. There's, a, there's two words that are used there 
that really speak not so much of acts of public worship or acts of worship in the New Testament of the churches in assembly, but the acts of worship that God's people give to God in all states, in all conditions, in all circumstances. We are servants of God. And the word for servants is used of slaves in relationship to their work and their masters. That the, that the slave is to be subject to his master. Not with eye services, men pleasers, not looking to please necessarily your masters, your earthly masters, but in singleness of heart, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. It's an act of service to the Lord in acts of normal stuff, of daily living, of daily activity in life, of doing your job. It can be an act of worship. It's the church that meets in worship and doing all these things for the purposes of teaching us the fear of God and learning the fear of God to live in serving God. So when God sent Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. You know, we think, okay, that means, you know, get out the tambourines, get out the music, get out the the prayer books, get out the praise books, get out the hymnals, and we're going to do church. Go out in the wilderness and do church. Show me where they did church in Mount Sinai. They didn't do church in Mount Sinai. But God entered into a covenant with them. And God gave them laws. And God gave them rules and regulations whereby they might honor him and they might serve him and they might revere him in the stuff of the way they conducted their lives before him. They were to live with regard to the eye of God. So that you won't put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall worship God. Now we translate it, fear the Lord. But actually it's the same word. It's the exact same word. that's used in other contexts for worship. Yare. It's a Hebrew word that speaks of fear. It speaks of having reverence. And it's not something that's necessarily what the church does when they assemble. But it's something that we do in every aspect of life. So we gather to be worshipers of God. And we worship him through these things that we do. But the idea of being worshipers of God doing these things is that we leave this place to being worshipers of God in the way we honor God and fear God and live for the glory of God. As we go to the store and we give a $20 bill and they give us change as if we'd given them a $100 bill. And you don't say, oh, look at this, the Lord's blessed me. I got eighty dollars more than I thought I'd have. Well, look at this. The Lord's blessed me. No, no. You fear God and recognize that the clerk made a mistake. And this is not a gain for you. This is actually a test for you. Will you fear the Lord? If you fear the Lord, you go back and say, Oh, look, ma'am, I'm sorry. I gave you a twenty, not a hundred dollar bill. Here, take this money back. This does not belong to me. And you carry out an uh, that's part of not having um, different kinds of weights and measures, you know, <laughs> the way that money is judged as in terms of value. If somebody gives you more than you should have, you, you give it back. It doesn't belong to you as part of having proper uh, dealings in, uh, with other people. It's giving people their due. It's acting in righteousness. It's acting in justice. That's worship. That's what it means to fear the Lord. So fear the Lord in every part and aspect of life. So we have a limiting concept of worship in the modern world. We associate it pretty much primarily or almost exclusively with music. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's not the correct understanding of worship. We have a better understanding in terms of Reformed thinking and teaching in that we do relate the whole matter of the public worship of God in a much broader category. That is, we gather for public worship and the public service and the public fear of God, which is what we are engaged in as we gather as God's people. We have much more that we're concerned to do. We're concerned to teach and preach and pray and praise and give and, and sing and attend upon the sacraments that Christ has commanded. And in that, we, we learn more of the fear of God. So when we leave, we're, 
we're, we're better capable of worshiping and serving the Lord, fearing Him, serving Him in every aspect of life, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, to do all to the glory of God. So the language of worship is just not confined to the public meetings of the church. It's not just the church in assembly. It's the church scattered into the community through the week. The church scattered throughout the world where we're not meeting together, honoring the Lord, serving Him. Um, look at this passage that's found in Hebrews chapter, I believe it's Hebrews chapter 12. The writer speaks about the things that we've come to or not come to, first of all, that we've not come to a Sinai-like condition in which there's just blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. That was a matter that did instill not just a, a, a reverence, but, but a fright, a fright into the heart of the people that were gathered at the mountain. Um, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And so, um, you know, that sort of relationship to God in terms of learning his fear, um, there's a part that is there, but we don't stay there. Just like we were talking last week that we come into the courtroom, but we don't live in the courtroom. We don't live there. We don't live in Mount Sinai with that sort of, Mount, uh, yeah, Mount Sinai with that sort of scene. It's enough to see it. It's enough to behold it. It's enough to say, yes, I know. That's how God revealed, revealed himself. He's a, he's a majestic God who, if he came with unvarnished display of his might and majesty, every knee would quake in his presence. No question that that would be true. But it's enough to get a sight of that. Now I shared with Pastor Nichols that whole study I did with you last week on the subject of living in the living in the, uh, not living in the courtroom. And I was saying that all these other relationships of life give us a lot more space in which to live. And um, Pastor Nichols, he came up with the, the notion, and I'll share it with you. I shared it with Tim yesterday, that um, it's like we're moved out of the courtroom into the living room. And that was probably a good way to put it. But, uh, the, yeah, God's preparing us for life. He's preparing us to live in his presence. And to live in his presence, not just with one aspect of his character filling our hearts and our minds. Because in the new covenant, we come with a whole new set of understandings and propositions because Christ has come in the flesh. And so he says in verse 22, But you've come to Mount Zion. And again, not the literal mountain upon which the temple stood, because there's, you know, the temple was going to be destroyed, the second temple, by the Romans. If it hadn't already been destroyed when Hebrews 12 was written, it would be destroyed in, in a matter of years. You've come to the city of the living God. Not Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. You come to these heavenly realities. You become to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Not just your earthly assemblies when you come and meet and gather you know, on the Lord's Day, but you come to that greater assembly, that assembly enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And again, you know, there's mention that's made of not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. That's an important place to learn these realities. But these realities are not confined to the public meeting. These are the realities that structure Christian life and understanding of our relationship to God. We've come on to these things, not just when we gather on the Lord's Day, but as we live life in God's world as new covenant believers. These are the blessings that we've come to. And so he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, with these, uh, you know, when God came on Sinai and spoke on the mountain, much less will you escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Again, the Jesus who's entered into the heavenly places to, as our mediator, appearing in the presence of God for us. And 
he gives forth these words. He gives forth these warnings. Not to, um, you know, how will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? We're given all these warnings of, as God has spoken to us in his Son. At that time, in the Old Covenant, he shook, his voice shook the earth. But now, as he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens, quoting the book of Haggai. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. You know, a permanent order that God is ushering in in the kingdom of his Son. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's not like the it's not like Pharaoh and his empire, nor is it even David and his empire, much less Babylon or Rome. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God what? Acceptable worship. Proskuneo. Acceptable bowing down before him with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire and again there's no mention here let us offer to God acceptable worship when you gather weekly it's acceptable worship as we serve God in all aspects of life as new covenant believers so whether we gather or whether we are living in our families, at our jobs, in our community, in, in the supermarket, wherever we are, whatever we do, we are to live in his fear. We are to live in his service. Hence, we are to live in his worship. So I just think that's an important thing to see, that worship has a much more uh, broad connotation scripturally than the modern world would <laughs> would would uh, indicate, or even our own Reformed tradition, although that's a lot healthier view of things, but again, we do this list here, so that when we're out there, we'll know our God better. We will live in reverence towards Him. We will live in awe of His majesty. We will live in His worship. Well, thank you for humoring me to express to you some of the things, hot hot topics on my mind this week. as a result of um, the good fellowship I enjoyed with um, God's servants. Let's unite before the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time to consider uh, these matters, and we pray that you would help us to think upon these things. You give us a deepening, further understanding of them. Help us to be your worshipers in everything we are and in everything that we do. And we pray that as we greet one another this morning, we would uh, greet one another in the, in the name of Christ with the, the sense of our mutual um, sharing in the great things of so great a salvation, the great realities of new covenant life that we all are privileged to know and we all are privileged to enjoy. And we pray that as we would sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in the morning hour, as we would pray, as we would hear your word, that, Lord, you would fill our hearts with a sense of wonder, love, and praise, and and give us grace as we would leave one another's company and fellowship to go out into this world as your worshipers, as your servants, as those who live in your fear, as we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.